0: Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, looking back at MLK and his visit to a Brooklyn church 55 years ago with someone who was there. And BAM's commemoration of the civil rights giant. Hi, I'm Brian Vines and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. I'm filling in again today for Ashley. Now whatever she had earlier this week came back, so Ms. Ford gets some rest and we'll see you when you're feeling better, which we hope will be very soon. We're sure of it actually. We've got a special show today and we're observing Martin Luther King Jr. Day early because we're off next Monday. We've got a witness to history, someone who saw Dr. King speak in Brooklyn in the 60s, an activist and lawyer to talk about the progress since then, and BAM's president's here to discuss their annual commemoration of the civil rights giant. But first, a few things. During his first term in office and in the re-election campaign, Bill de Blasio spoke of grand goals on climate change. Now, advocates are saying now is the time to deliver. Well, let's hope this is the start of something. The mayor announced on Wednesday that he would divest about $5 billion in city pension funds from fossil fuel companies. He also announced a lawsuit against major oil companies seeking to collect billions in damages to cover costs related to climate change. He said all of this under a sign that read, New York City, leading the fight against climate change. Now, that is contrary to what another city product might say, the one who's changing our political climate from the Oval Office filed this one under atrocious. The Daily News reports today that an intellectually disabled girl was gang-raped at a Brooklyn school and after reporting it was suspended herself for engaging in sexual acts on school premises. Now while the rest of that incident was supposedly swept under the rug by officials at Teachers Preparatory High School. Pure foolishness out there will definitely continue to follow that story. Also, a report released on Tuesday says that foreclosures in Brooklyn doubled last year, with Canarsie and East New York suffering the most. Now, in Canarsie alone, they had about 25 percent of the borough homes slated to be auctioned off. You may wonder why. Well, some of it has to do with Superstorm Sandy and homeowners who had to cover some of the repairs out-of-pocket, as well as the usual economic forces that hit the hardest on those with the fewest resources. A city council member representing Canarsie said this year might not be any better. Presently there are liens on nearly 1,000 of the neighborhood's properties for either failure to pay taxes, property taxes that is, or water bills. Speaking of homes, or those without them, a bodega owner in Brooklyn was just featured in the New York Times for his generosity to the homeless. He's opened his bodega off hours to individuals living on the streets in his Borough Park neighborhood. He said he shelters as many as six to a dozen individuals a night among the pallets of food and those bodega cats because, quote, they don't have, and I do. Yes, more of that please. Coming up, a cross-generational chat about MLK and his legacy. It was 50 years ago this very year that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. He would have turned 89 on Monday, the day the nation celebrates his life and his accomplishments. Today, we're going to honor him and the legacy he left behind and remember the brief time he spent in Brooklyn in 1963. Now, we all know that's the year that he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech on the National Mall. But what you may not know is that very same year, he delivered another speech to a packed house at the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights. That speech was called American Dream. Let's take a listen to an excerpt.
1: The American dream reminds us that every man is the heir of a legacy of worthfulness. But ever since the founding fathers of our nation dreamed this dream, America has been something of a schizophrenic personality. On the one hand, we have proudly professed the noble principles of democracy. On the other hand, we have sadly practiced the very antithesis of those principles. Indeed slavery and segregation have been strange paradoxes in a nation founded on the principle that all men are created equal now more than ever before, America is challenged to realize its noble dream.
0: Noble dream indeed. Well, one of our very first guests today is a longtime Plymouth Church parishioner. And she was there that very day. Grace Faison, welcome to 112BK. Thanks for being with us.
2: Glad to be here. Thank you. And we're also
0: very happy to welcome Laree Daniel Favors, an activist and lawyer with the Center for Law and Justice at Medgar Evers College, who wasn't even born in 1963, but through the years, she's felt the ripples and been inspired by MLK's words. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to have both of you here today. So in the tradition of inviting smart people to talk about stuff, let's just have a conversation. What was it like to be in that room when Dr. King was a few
2: little blocks from here delivering that speech? You can't believe how intense your feelings were. I cry at Hallmark cards, but how could you not be in tears and be moved by this presence? It was so powerful and I was so glad to have my son there because I thought he was going to be part of history It was memorable, and standing in line to shake his hand, and I have to tell you, when I shook his hand, I looked right at him and spoke to him and said how proud I was of him. And he smiled at me, and I felt honored. You just were in a presence of a really tremendous person, and it was a privilege.
0: So, Larry, we've canonized the man, and rightfully so, yeah. but we often get this very narrow view of MLK based on one speech, but just listening to that excerpt we just did, there was some stuff that's more relevant today i would dare to say than it even was when he made the pronouncements then
3: i think you're absolutely right and we had the opportunity to speak a bit beforehand about the similarities between what our society was experiencing during the time when dr king was alive and now and what we see happening within our broader society and so some of those words that he said many of those oh. words that he said are, I would dare say, even more relevant now in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Thrilling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, just to contextualize it a little, I know that you shared something with me about why he was there that day. He was there as part of a larger program because Plymouth Church of the Pilgrim would join the National Historic Register, and they were celebrating all of the work that it's done through the church for anti-slavery causes.
2: And through Henry Henry Ward Beecher and his, his group, who are very... Strong abolitionists.
0: Absolutely. So continuing that tradition right up into the 1960s, I wondered, leaving the room after you met him, you looked at the man, had that contact, shook his hand, what was the energy? Did people go out and form groups to move the needle further on civil rights in the country?
2: I don't, to tell you the truth, I don't remember. I just remember going out with a group, a mm-hmm. small group of people, and talking about the fact that we knew we'd been in a great presence. We were all moved. We carry on the tradition because we have mm. tours of Plymouth Church, and we show the underground railroad that uh, Beecher established to hide the slaves, yeah. and we auction slaves from our pulpit. The actuality of the slave
0: auction at Plymouth wasn't like a slave auction, but the the real
2: idea to buy the slaves away. So we wanted Pinky here. was uh, brought up on stage and auctioned off, and the price was named, and the, there was money basket passed around, and money was raised to free her. Right. And actually, somebody put in a ring uh, with a ruby in it for part of the to make enough money to free her, and she was freed, and she went. Oh, what's the story? She went to Washington, became a teacher. She came back to Plymouth, and uh, at the end of the auction, Henry Ward Beecher gave her the ring, but she came back to Plymouth and gave the ring to Plymouth, and we have it on display now in our exhibit. And it was really an amazing thing, but there were a number, but the story of Pinky is well known. Our church has always been very strong in being very helpful. Yeah,
0: well, we uh, need a lot of help in every way. And the movement now has moved from the church to our streets, to our back pockets with our phones. How's the digital age sort of paying respect? to history and moving things forward, do you think, Larry?
3: It's been, we're in such a moment of empowering, information gathering, information distribution in ways that, you know, when my husband and I are engaged in some of this work and when we're engaged in this work at the center, one of the things we often say was, if Harriet Tubman had a smartphone, if Frederick Douglass had a library card, Mm -hmm. if we were able to have the tools of today paired with the passion of yesterday, what could we do? And we see that, we see the passion of yesterday being. Reborn in ways through movements like Black Lives Matter, um, through the Me Too movement. You know, these are both significant movements that were shaped and are being formulated by the leadership of black women who are at the forefront of uh, really challenging some of those s- systemic issues that are still with us today. Um, so, you know, we're seeing so much um, evolution as it pertains to even how we drive the conversation, how we shape where it is we want to center our focus. And mm-hmm. so it's been a real blessing um, to have the wisdom from our elders and from people who were in those rooms really being paired up now with the activism for today's millennials. Well,
0: wisdom of our elders, I'm looking at you again Ms. Faison and thinking about how young people today may think of martin luther king in a very sort of narrow window i wonder if you could contextualize a little bit about what it meant to be there in the 60s to be present and sort of share some of that energy so young people don't think oh it's a black and white thing that i watch for 30 seconds on the news every january
2: well all i know is i was proud of plymouth stand and the way that plymouth reacts and does even today with the history ministry and how we care, and we're perpetuating that. We have tours, and we tell the history of Plymouth and the struggle to carry on, and and it's part of the history of the church.
0: Yeah, and looking at that history, I'm thinking about the place of all of communities, particularly communities that aren't of color. In the place, in the struggle, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit about what it means to be a non-black, mainly, a mainly non-black congregation who is in the fight and an ally of repressed peoples.
2: I think that we have come a long way at Plymouth. We've we've had two big task forces studying our church and caring about how people feel, and we are openly affirmative of all people Mm -hmm. and this is a big step forward we always were but now it's it's in writing and it's something we're very proud of and plymouth is very open and affirming and welcoming and this is something that I think is important, which is why we have the history ministry. We give tours. The number of children that have never been in a church before or never heard of any of this history is amazing. They'll come in and they don't know what the organ is and they don't. They pick up a hymnal and say, what is this? And, you know, the first hymns were sung at Plymouth Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Ward Beecher liked to sing hymns. So th- our church has always been this kind of a, uh, an important an important place, yeah, and i'm mystery. I'm just thrilled that I, that Martin Luther King spoke at our church and that I had the privilege of hearing him, and that my son did. And uh, Harry Crooner was our minister at that time, and he'd gone to brown university with with Martin Luther King, and which is why he was invited. And Harry Krooner was a wonderful minister and very liberal and very smart and very. Real, he was a real minister. Some ministers have the X ingredient, and they really believe. And ha- well, it's yeah, true. Listen. And Harry had the X ingredient, but he was very straightforward. And he, and the friendship between Harry and Martin Luther King, you could see that they were friends, and wow. that was very affirming.
0: If you got to have a friend, I wouldn't mind having a friend like MLK. <laughs> and I'm looking at you now, Laurie. H uh, and M H&M ads notwithstanding, mm. where is the fight today? Where do we need some of that King energy to? To move the needle further.
3: Yeah, I, I think the fight is any and everywhere that we see issues of injustice. Um, the HM ad is just one, um, but whether it's voting rights and voter protections, you know, right now we just had the first presidential election that was not protected by the Voting Rights Act since there was a Voting Rights Act. We've seen voter IDs, we've seen, you know, even here in the state of New York, our voting laws are so antiquated and make it so difficult and they're so repressive that other very red states cite to New York's current voting debacle as a tool for how to continue minimizing um, electoral expansion. Um, We've got issues of police brutality and racial violence in policing. And again, there was just recent legislation that was really battled out in the city council here as it pertains to how police are engaging with people on the streets. We've got you know, a public school system. New York City is one of the most segregated school systems in the country. And even regardless of the racial makeup of the school, black children are still not given a culturally competent education. Um, So the, the fight is everywhere. You know, Professor Derek Bell, who I was privileged enough to study under when I was a law student at NYU, he has this quote where he says, you know, my greatest fears are being realized, that we have progressed in every way and nothing has changed. And so, again, you know, the, the battle against structural white supremacy and institutionalized racism will continue. Um, And I'm just excited to see that the generation—you know, I'm Gen X millennial, I'm sort of in that bridge. And it's just so exciting to see that the fire is still there and that young people are still engaged and are are engaged in this battle, whether it's by joining indivisible groups, whether it's recognizing that being in a a political party is not enough and you have to be a part of shaping the conversation and presenting an agenda, Um, and then, you know, learning how to organize. push that agenda forward, how to hold our elected officials accountable, and how to hold ourselves accountable as community members, whether or not we have a title. Um, So I think that is the perfect place to lead
0: it. You've been (laughs) called to action, folks, Loree Daniel Favors from the Center for Law and Social Justice at Medgar Evers, and one of our favorite parishioners over at Plymouth Church. Thank you very much for coming in, Ms. Faison.
2: It's my pleasure.
0: Now we have another special guest from just around the corner. They're good neighbors. She's the president of the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which hosts the largest public celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. in this city. I venture <laughs> to say even the Eastern Seaboard, but maybe she'll set me straight. This will be its 32nd year, and we're eager to hear about what's in store. Katie Clark, welcome to 112BK. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about this event. Listen, we're very happy to have you. And just before we started speaking, I'm going to let you know, I was a little wondering about 32 years later. How do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it moving? At a home for innovative artists and audiences (laughs) and adventurous folks, how do you put a BAM stamp on MLK 32 years later?
4: Well, if if you think about what BAM does, all the time we're putting on work that provokes people, and consoles people, right, mm. those two things. Yeah. If you think about the work of Dr. King, it's not so very different. That's true. He provoked us. He provoked us to take action, to resist, to organize, to do it as many ways as we could, to work really hard, yeah. right? That's not, that's not different. To console people, to give them a place to be, to give them a sense of comfort, to endure. 32 years, the longevity itself is very important. It's very important that we keep on doing this every year. That's right. So, some of the things we've done to keep it fresh, though, um, added programs. So, you know, for, for the longest time, it was the big
0: celebration yeah. in the opera house. Your That's, whole building yeah. is activated so all now. So now the
4: whole building is activated, and people show up really early in the morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. They queue. We open the doors at 9.30. It's, it's a great thing to see, people piling into the opera house. It's a 2,000-seat house. It's yeah. a lot of people. But we added free screenings. So every year we do a, f- a free um, film screening at 1 That's o'clock right. after the celebration ends and we've added literary events and then we do the bam cafe mm-hmm. so friday and saturday night as well we have a music event yeah. so and they're all free yeah. all of those programs are free so that's one of the ways that we've kept it kept it fresh kept it you know different and but there are some things that endure and that's also really great
0: Speaking of enduring, you have some phenomenal people who've had the honor of being the keynote from the, what, a Cornel West one year, Angela Davis, one of the Little Rock Nine. This year you are going to be bringing... This year is
4: Jelani Cobb. Last year was Opal Tometi. I think we've had Harry Belafonte. We've had Kofi Annan. But Jelani is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Um, He also teaches at Columbia University. I can't wait to see him speak. Yeah. Um, Every year we try to find somebody who's involved and um, in the civil
0: rights movement. Absolutely. It's an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm wondering, people might be listening to your East New York (laughs) accent, a little further east across the pond, as they call it. So I wonder what it is that you bring with your global view to this little town square that we know as BAM, if there's anything that you're sort of helping to shepherd in. You see, I
4: I think it's the other way around. I think Brooklyn's brought a lot to me. Okay. Because Brooklyn is this incredibly diverse place, right? It's It's just an amazing... It's two-thirds people of color. It's, yeah. you know, it's everything and anything under the sun. I grew up in this tiny <laughs> little town in South Wales. I had a lot of beaches, a lot yeah. of books, a lot of violin playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, is a, this is an open-your-eyes experience. But I also grew up in a very um, hard-working city, in a hard-working part of the country. And, you know, I appreciate the struggle of working people. And that's really important. That's a really important part of... Um, You know, the quest for social justice and fairness and equality. Well, speaking
0: of those hardworking people, I'm just reminded of in the later years of Dr. King and a legacy that a lot of people may forget when you just get to look at that one clip every year. But you guys do always push the envelope and really keep your finger on the pulse with Black Lives Matter co founders and Jelani's there this year. Really making it a contemporary celebration and a call to action.
4: Yep. And this year, actually, the book launch is a a book by Patrice Cullors, another one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and the the movie is a movie by Spike Lee, Four Little Girls, about the uh, murder of four African-American girls in the bombing bombing, um, in Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. So, you know, yes, every year we try to, you know, find something in the ancillary programs that keeps everything fresh in people's minds.
0: So just do a little housekeeping with us. Tell me how my day will be programmed (laughs) when I wake up (laughs) on MLK Day Monday. What is it starting with and BAM is holding me hostage all day?
4: Right, so get thee to the Opera House early. Otherwise,
0: you don't get a great seat. Yes,
4: so we open at 8 Uh, We start seating at 9.30. The tribute begins sometime after that. There's always an incredibly inspirational musical performance as part of the celebration. Um,
0: Along with everyone else who would ever want you to vote for them tries to get a few seconds at the mic. Yes,
4: there are some civic leaders who who bend our ears a little. That's that's all part of the proceedings. And then around 12.30 we wrap up and then you move on to your movies at 1 or your literary events at 1. And then the BAM Cafe is at 9 o'clock Friday or Saturday. Phenomenal. Yep, that's your weekend.
0: <laughs> that's our weekend into Monday and a great way yeah. to celebrate MLK. And if you can't get in, which sometimes happens, which oftentimes happens, so get there early. Yep. But there's lots of great opportunities for service that will honor yep. the man throughout the day. And yeah. you can watch online later yep. after doing some work. So thank you so much thank for coming to join us. Happy to have you as a neighbor. We'll yes. see you at BAM.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. Now we jump over to Manhattan to spotlight a show that just premiered off-Broadway with the Atlantic Theatre Company. It's about a trip home for a Nigerian novelist, which doesn't go as well as she might have hoped. The play is called The Homecoming Queen, and its author, Ngozi Anyanwu, is here to talk about it. Welcome to 112BK. Thanks for having me. So uh, I said a moment ago, you're here this time as yeah. a playwright. I am, I we am. We know you as a creative.
5: Yes, yes. Without
0: limits. Yes. But you've got a play <laughs> that's in the second night of previews, mm-hmm. and you're getting ready to release this thing to the world. hmm Tell me about the Homecoming <laughs> Queen.
5: Um, well, Homecoming Queen follows a well-known Famous novelist um, who's made her way in America and is pulled back home um, by her father who is sick. Um, and as the play progresses, uh, no spoiler alerts, yes. um, she learns about all the things that she's actually really left behind and about her pull uh, towards her heritage. Okay, yeah. so the
0: pull towards the heritage, which happens to be Nigerian, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I suspect, as with your other works, this play is universal in its specificity.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's a family drama. It's a family drama about home, and I basically wanted to make a Nigerian prodigal daughter story. Okay. Um, and so what you do is really you follow this girl, and this woman, and, and her father, and their sort of torn relationship, and all the people that she meets along the way, that she's being reintroduced to to. Yeah. Um, she sort of stripped herself of her Nigerianness ness mm-hmm. and is kind of getting back to her roots. So it's a getting back to your roots story.
0: Is it a yeah. story for the Me Too generation? We have a female protagonist Yeah, there, there is
5: trauma in there um, uh, as well, um, but I really want to say that the play is very much about healing and how do we make the first steps uh, towards our trauma and how do we make the first steps towards our healing. So this is not an answer, right. but it's a sort of um,
0: an offering. So, how much of yourself is in this?
5: Um, I mean, it comes from my head. It comes from my heart. Um, So it's not an autobiographical story, but, you know, I am a first-generation Nigerian. Um, I do have a very traditional father and a very traditional family. Um, It's based on just little things I've experienced every time I've gone back to Nigeria, being very much a fish out of water and not being bilingual. Um, uh, But it's also about all the things I sort of... Uh, hope and wish and yeah. think of um, and hope for, so it's got a lot of me, but it's not me yeah. that makes sense.
0: Well everybody loves a culture class
5: yeah yeah, and I can imagine <laughs> going
0: back home is a thing mm mm-hmm. And what do you think are some of the specific things that happen in a Nigerian context for someone who might have dropped all of these things on their climb up that yeah. they didn't realize they'll need when they get to the top?
5: I mean, I think it's the other thing where it's like I th- what's interesting is uh, I was not born in Nigeria, both my parents were born in Nigeria, but I still consider myself very Nigerian. I feel you. Um people consider me very Nigerian They're like yeah. you're not from here though, really. Are you? And I'm like I don't know what that means, right. but I do uh, believe that some of the 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 Intensity of Igbo people, which is the ethnic group of my parents, okay. um, are very ingrained into me. So the need, the want for success, the hustle, you know. Nigerians are considered the New Yorkers of Africa, and Igbo people specifically are also considered the New Yorkers of Nigeria. All right. And so there is sort of that pride um, that I think that um, I grew up with. That I like. Yeah. I don't dis I
0: don't dislike it. Yeah.
5: Um and those things of like, oh yeah, yeah, you're an Ebo girl. <laughs>
0: so I wanted to ask you about to contextualize something yeah. for me because I know a lot of us are familiar with a lot of the movies that come mm. from the continent and yes. particularly from Nigeria. Oh the film yes. Industry the that pumps them out. yes, the yes. Nollywood movies. Yes, yes. And I wondered about Theater in Nigeria, Mm. and maybe even the possibility of touring your show in Nigeria and seeing some theater arts come out of there instead of movies as much.
5: I mean, I've seen, I've not seen a lot of theater in Nigeria as far as live theater. Lots of sort of goes within, uh, like I know in the village we had a little like ayaw reunion party, and the kids would like write things and perform things and things like that. Mm. Um, But economically, I'm not sure exactly how that would work. There's Lakey, which is like incredibly wealthy and nice, and I know that they brought Phila yeah. uh, there. So I know that it's, that could be, you know, a possibility. There's a part of, uh, there are parts of Nigeria that are just actually incredibly wealthy that have Absolutely. just tons and tons of art and textile and stuff. Like if you go to some parts of Victoria Island, it is like the artists that are coming out of there are... Phenomenal, yeah, yeah. incredible! Like you would just be like, "Oh my God, this is this is Nigeria." Um, and yes, big, it is. Yes,
0: it is. But in the last twenty seconds, do some housekeeping. Tell us where we're going and how to see the homecoming queen.
5: To see the homecoming queen, you go on atlantictheater.com. We run uh, tonight, uh, all the way up until February tenth, eleventh, with a possible one-week extension. So keep a lookout. I'm feeling pretty good. Our previews are sold out, yeah. uh, but don't believe the hype. There were a couple empty seats tickets yesterday, <laughs> right. so just get there early with student ID or show up there for standby tickets. Rosie,
0: I wish you much success, thank a you phenomenal so much. run, and thank reviews, you. and a well-deserved rest. I heard coming up. Yes, yeah. yes. Like, keep working, girl. I, I will. I will. All All right. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us, and thank you for joining us today. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next week after MLK Day to talk about DACA, getting more women on the ballot, and how things look one year after the inauguration of Donald Trump. Hope to see you then. Bye
6: now. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargie, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Huggleson. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112 bkpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.